0: Good morning and welcome to our American Heritage. I am Arch Hunter, the host of the program. Our American Heritage is a program where we explore in depth the American experience from its beginning through the present. And today we want to welcome back as our special guest, Dr. Mike Carpin. So, Dr. Carpen, thank you for coming back on the program today.
1: It's great to be back, Arch. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you for coming. Dr. Carpen is doing a series for us on causes of the American Civil War. And he has just recently edited, authored a book on that subject. And Dr. Carpin is a graduate of Gettysburg College with a master's degree from Johns Hopkins University and also a doctorate degree from the University of Pennsylvania. And he is now in his 19th year of teaching. At Markham Newtown High School, and he's only 21 years old. So he
1: yeah, yeah, I exactly. I <laughs> I I I went pro right after kindergarten. Uh, yes, and- <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I, uh, you and Kobe, yeah. right? <laughs> yes, even earlier than Kobe Bryant. He Kobe, uh, he had. Kobe
0: Carpenter. It sounds it yeah. Sounds like a I
1: was I was a prodigy.
0: So Dr. Carp, you are doing the series on causes of the Civil War, mm-hmm. and it continues to catch my mind when I first asked you several weeks ago that Mm -hmm. the causes of the Civil War you said are simple but yet very, very uh, problematic at the same time. And you're going through the different causes of the Civil War. So if you would, mm-hmm. for our listeners, pick up where you left off and just continue on with about the different causes and what was happening and why it was happening. Yeah,
1: I, I, I'm i actually trying to remember where we left off. I think we had just gotten through Bleeding Kansas, if, uh, yes. if memory serves me correctly.
0: Yeah. You know, it's just,
1: you know, review where where we were talking about before. I I mean, it is obvious. And as I say to students sometimes that the you know top five causes of the American Civil War are slavery, 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 slavery and slavery. I I mean, (laughs) it is very clear that that is the issue which rips this country apart for four years. But what makes it complex is that it, it, it really, truly is. And I don't know whether this is, you know, chicken or the egg, smoke, you know, smoke before fire, you know. However you want to want to characterize it, but it's one of those things that really, truly does hit every element of American society from top to bottom. You know we have a lot of pressing issues in in this country today, but I'm not sure we can find the one that may be responses to the current pandemic. I don't know, although that's not even a maybe it may be a great example, but just, I, I think it's it's very hard for us to wrap our brains around something like that. And when you look at really the long-reaching political effects of it, it's it's actually, I, I mean, to to your point, it was kind of difficult to organize my notes to to try to get a sequential flow to talk about because it's so complicated. And you can go in this direction, you can go in that direction, and it brings up this thing, and then it brings in something else. It just, it it truly is such an extraordinary time period in American history. And so what's the issue that leads to a very, how shall I put it, an uneasy series of compromises until the point when we begin to not be able to compromise anymore, and that's westward expansion. So, you know, we start with the Louisiana Purchase and and going back that far as the country expands, what to do with this institution of slavery. And so you have the the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1856, which tries to figure it out. Brings in Nebraska as a free state, and Stephen A. Douglas, this senator from Illinois, says, Well, hey, I did something similar in Utah territory a few years earlier, and it worked out fine. Popular sovereignty, you know, let's just let the people decide. And it didn't go particularly well. There's a reason why we call it Bleeding Kansas, and Bleeding Kansas only does more to exacerbate the issue of slavery on the national front. It brings John Brown into notoriety, and it leads to not, not only that, it not only you know, continues to inflame this issue, it begins to... you know, We've talked about this before, Archie, you know, with, with something like the Electoral College. We've got a very strong two-party tradition in the United States. It, you know, for some, it's a sign of the stability of our systems of government they will we only have two major political parties others see it you know i don't know as something that could be improved upon we need more political parties and what this issue starts to do in the 1850s is that it starts to break down the two-party system in the united states so prior to the mid-1850s you have the democratic party and the whigs the whigs were founded in a response to the presidency of andrew jackson the Whigs were a national party, a national coalition. There were northern interests. There were southern interests. And they begin to fracture over the issue of slavery. Anti-slavery Whigs joined this brand-new Republican Party in 1854. Some Whigs follow Millard Fillmore and his American Party, the Know-Nothing Party, in 1856. Some join the Democratic Party. All over the issue of slavery. But then at the same time, the, the Democratic Party isn't going to be doing so well either because, again, there's Northern Democrats, there's Southern Democrats. To what extent are they going to be able to compromise over this hot button issue? You can really see the storm clouds beginning to form.
0: And Mike, where does James Buchanan now fit into all of this? <laughs> you fall, fall into this. We're we're in this time period. Yeah,
1: and and then and in the middle of this, you know, I I, I don't know, arch how you want to put it. Um, you, you, we get absolutely the worst person for the job possible in James Buchanan. I have to tell you something I like to do with students, especially when I'm talking specifically about the presidency, is that I will put three the the qualifications for three candidates up on the board. Candidate A, candidate B, candidate C. And for one candidate, I will give them James Buchanan's qualifications. For another candidate, I will give them Andrew Johnson's qualifications. And in the third candidate, I'll give them Abraham Lincoln's qualifications before becoming president of the United States. And they all pick either James Buchanan or Andrew Johnson. None of them pick Abraham Lincoln. And then when I reveal that this highly qualified candidate is James Buchanan, They say, but why, you know, how, how is that possible? How does that work out? Um, you know, Buchanan on paper is ideal to get the Democratic nomination in 1856 because Franklin Pierce is done. Buchanan has been off being Pierce's minister to the United Kingdom. He hasn't been a part. He's, he's like an outside voice. He hasn't been a part of any of this. And so he, he gets the nomination. The, the electorate is split between the, you have John Fremont, who's the Republican candidate in 1856, and you have Millard Fillmore with the, the American party, the know nothings. And so that contingency is, is, is all split. Buchanan wins the Democratic nomination, becomes the president of the United States. And it's just, it's just one of those things where like, we see this with the presidency sometimes. That the presidency either exposes your strengths, as is the case with Abraham Lincoln and other great US presidents or it absolutely reveals to the world your weaknesses mm-hmm. and i think that's the case with Buchanan i mean this guy i i threw up some of my notes just to you know Buchanan was in the military he was in the house of representatives he was minister to russia ambassador to the united kingdom he was the secretary of state he was a united states senator and he is he is absolutely incapable. He's just just absolutely the wrong person for the for the job at the at the wrong time. Now, I mean, the question begs: Could anybody? Could any president? Could any chief executive have come in in 1856 and headed off this conflict? And that's. You know, that that's an important question. Yes. And I think when you see the tack that Lincoln takes when he's elected president on the issue of slavery to basically say, you know, to the very strong position that the Republican Party takes, perhaps that's the only thing that's going to fear this conflict one way or another. So Buchanan comes in and he basically says, oh, well, all I need to do here, I just have to maintain some sectional balance in my actions. I just have to I'll, I'm going to assemble my cabinet and I'm going to bring in people from the north and I'm going to bring people from the south and I'm going to be nice to everybody. And I'm going to I'm going to try and be conciliatory. And then he says in his inaugural address on top of that, he just says, oh, well, you know, we just need to wait until the United States Supreme Court, because what decision has not come out yet? Dred Scott. Scott, we yeah. just need to wait with what the Supreme Court says about this issue. And then we just need to accept it and we need to move on. Now, there's a lot of really, 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 really good historical evidence. Stop me if we've talked about this before, that Buchanan knew what the Dred Scott decision was going to be when he said it, Mm. when he said that in his inaugural address. And there's even a little more historical evidence that he might have been working behind the scenes to influence members of the Supreme Court in terms of the Dred Scott decision. And so you know what the Dred Scott decision says, that basically enslaved people even if they they feel that they're free under existing state laws, are not equal citizens, and it also in in one fell swoop in, invalidates the Missouri Compromise and opens the prospect of slavery coming into all of these new western territories. And so Buchanan says, oh well, we just we just have to accept this and move on and just try to work it out.
0: Mike, I'm going yeah, to go ask ahead. your opinion. Do, do you believe? And it, you know, I I don't know what your feeling is on. Do you believe then that? Buchanan was actually somewhat leaning towards having the institution of slavery, or was he just so incompetent that he couldn't make yeah, a decision one another? I,
1: I, you know, I, I think based on, and you know, you you, you know, for the for the sake of your mental health, you try not to get into too much study on James yeah. Buchanan because it just, you know, <laughs> but you know, that's the that's the you know, and, and uh, you know, that's a discussion in a for another day, but he was. I would characterize him as southern leaning okay. in his sympathies. I think that he he was okay with the practice of slavery continuing to exist, and he wanted to try and make the South happy so they wouldn't leave the union, they wouldn't secede. I mean, when the Dred Scott decision comes out, he basically says, "Oh, well, just make hands a slave state, just problem solved, moving oh. on yeah and and so I think it's in part his stripes and it's in part you know just not being able to read the room and thinking his approach is going to work mm. in some way uh, uh, and just and then when you see what happens in the midterm elections in 1858 where the Republican Party this brand new Republican Party takes control of the House of Representatives the United States Senate is still Southern Democratic uh, you know <laughs> just this is just an impossible situation for any president with some political skill, let sure. alone James Buchanan here.
0: Oh, Difficult situation to be in. And unfortunately, the president at the time wasn't able to make strong decisions. Yeah, you, you know, he
1: just, uh, you know, it, it's it's just, it's just a comment. I mean, it's an impossible situation, but he was in no way even close to being up, to the task of doing the job which is just unfortunate for us
0: now my next question mike is mm-hmm. if we had a stronger president in 1856 <laughs> if we had a person who was more definitive in their views and trying to hold the line do you mm-hmm. do you think or possibly that the civil war could have been avoided
1: you know we're really hard on james Buchanan, and, and you know justifiably so in a lot of ways but it's a, It's an interesting hypothetical. Could anybody have done it? Anybody gets elected President of the United States in eighteen fifty six. You know, gives their inaugural address. The Dred Scott decision comes out two days later. Really, I mean, talk about ripping the BandAid off the wound right there in, in terms of the Dred Scott decision. I don't know if anybody has the political skill. In order to be able to pull that off. I mean, uh, look look at Abraham Lincoln, who is only one of the most massively gifted politicians in American political history. And look how much, who has, I, I would say you and I would agree, Arch, you know, takes a very clear course of action about the issue, you know, is a clear moral reset for this country on the issue. And look how difficult that was. And then Look what happens with Reconstruction in the wake of the American Civil War. You know, another interesting hypothetical. Could Lincoln have managed Reconstruction? I mean, he would have done better than Andrew Johnson. But, you know, to what extent would he have been successful with Reconstruction? I I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it might die very well might have been cast by that point when you have two sides who have no interest in compromising with one another.
0: And Mike, how then, when the Republicans in 1858 they take the House, mm-hmm. how does that get us to, I think, relatively unknown Abraham Lincoln in 1860?
1: Well, you know that that's the thing. You know, to what extent is Lincoln unknown in 1860? Mm. He is not as prominent as the the presumptive Republican nominee heading into into 1860 the, the, is who's William Seward the senator from New York, you know, a very prominent individual. He's he's not on the level of William Seward, but he's not exactly an unknown either. He had run against Stephen A. Douglas for the Illinois Senate in 1858 in the you know, the very famous Lincoln-Douglas debates which received nationwide attention. Because of the focus on the issue of slavery, and also too, with telegraph lines and all of this instantaneous communication, you know Lincoln's words were being carried to newspapers all over the united states and then on after after now he loses the election. I remember trying to explain this to one of my children once because they one of their her favorite books was uh, as a as a child was a book called Abe Lincoln's Hat." Which was actually a really cute little kid's book. I don't know anybody at home looking for a, a really cute <laughs> Abe Lincoln book for for a younger kid. It's called Abe Lincoln's Head. It's absolutely charming. But they talked about, like, you know, he, he lost the election in 1858. And so, you know, my seven year old looks at me at times says, Dad, how could he lose? He was such a, And it's like, well, let's explain how U.S. senators were elected back in 1858. They weren't popularly elected. They were elected by the state legislators. The Illinois state legislature was Democratic, which was the party of Stephen A. Douglas. And so Lincoln wasn't going to win. But he really does. If it had been a popular election, I bet you Lincoln would have won in 1858 because He really, Alan Galzo, now at Princeton, who used to be at Gettysburg College, wrote a a wonderful book on the Lincoln-Douglas debates a few years ago. And he really, Lincoln really did run circles around Stephen A. Douglas during these debates. So he's known from the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And then more importantly, he travels east in 1860, and he gives a speech, a very good speech, at the Cooper Union in New York, which was now today at some... uh, I think the Cooper Union is like an art school or or something along those lines. Um, but the Cooper Union was one of the prominent lyceums where, where people who were on the national stage went and gave speeches. And so Lincoln spoke. He spoke about the issue of slavery. He wowed the very sophisticated New York crowd who were initially kind of horrified by the appearance of this very tall, gangly backwoodsman from Illinois with his accent. And his wrinkled suit, because he had traveled across the country by train, they were horrified when he thanked the chairman of the Cooper Union for this invitation, but he got his legs under him and he gave a really good speech. And he also had a very famous photo taken at Matthew Brady's studio in New York City. Listeners at home, you can uh, Google the Lincoln Cooper Union photo. And one of the first images of this guy that was distributed nationwide in, in print form. So... He's a known name. That's a very long-winded answer to a very short question. He, he's a and, and, known name. Uh, go ahead.
0: What was the political differences between William Seward and Lincoln? You know, Seward's from uh, New York.
1: Seward in, in the Seward. in the um. Let's see. In the uh, Lincoln is seen as more moderate than William Seward. Seward is seen as more radical in some of his positions. In fact I had put this into my notes earlier. I wanted to find this that that Seward had given a speech Sometime between – I can't remember the right off the top of my head – sometime in, in 1858 or 1859 when he basically said that we have a growing – we have an irrepressible conflict between opposing and enduring forces. And it means that the United States must and will sooner or later become entirely either a slave-holding nation or entirely a free labor nation. And so a lot of people in the South were really interested by that comment coming from William Stewart. They basically saw it as like – a declaration of war. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in theory you're still trying to nominate somebody with national appeal. Lincoln was seen as more of a moderate because he said and even if you look at Lincoln's inaugural address that he gives in March of 1861, he says I'm not going to stop slavery where it already exists. I'm against its expansion, which is seen as a more moderate and and palatable position.
0: And then, Mike, how does Lincoln win the 1860 election? Oh, uh,
1: gosh, uh, that's, that's almost an episode in its own right. Let's just say a lot of good old fashioned politicking
0: goes on, <laughs> you
1: know, this is not this is, you know, I, I, I love describing this to students, you know, the, the conventions of today, which are basically like five day long infomercials for the two parties where they give speeches. And, you know, it's so hard for us to think about going to conventions not knowing who the nominees of parties were going to be. Mm -hmm. Now, where is the Republican convention in 1860? Is it in New York? I don't know if you recall, Arch. The 1860 Republican convention is in Chicago, Abraham Lincoln's backyard. And there's there's people in the Republican party who helped that happen. Basically, Lincoln's, I'll try to not be too long-winded about this, but Lincoln's basic strategy is to tell people, I'm going to be, we're going to do the first ballot. And Seward's going to come in at the top of the first ballot, but he's not going to have enough to get the nomination. I'm going to be a strong second. And so when, and this is exactly what happens when Lincoln comes in second, on the first ballot then now lincoln wasn't there none of the candidates were there because it was beneath the 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 political candidates of the day to be doing all that behind the scenes politicking they had their people doing all that stuff lincoln's people can go to the rest of the delegations and say hey if you come to us then when lincoln gets the nomination we can begin to work all that out and one of these individuals is simon cameron who at the time is the governor of Pennsylvania. And he finishes very, very low down the ballot and things happen behind the scenes. And the Pennsylvania delegation Throws its Begins to throw support To Abraham Lincoln Who is Abraham Lincoln's First Secretary of War When he becomes President of the United States Simon Cameron from, okay. from Pennsylvania And Lincoln apparently Said at one point I'm not giving any deals To anybody None will be taken None will be given You know Anything like that But you get the feeling That, that some of that Is going on So all of that Between ballots All of that goes on Behind the scenes And Lincoln Eventually wins The Republican nomination Which absolutely Crushes William Seward absolutely, absolutely, absolutely crushes him. You know, Hillary Clinton in 2008 knew how William Seward felt when, you know, he, he thought it was his moment, she thought uh-huh. it was her moment, and then this young upstart comes out of left field and engineers the upset, and it, it just, it it happens, it happens sometimes.
0: Well, would you be so gracious to come back another time and, and give us...
1: Absolutely, a- because we haven't eight- even gotten into the election of 1860 itself, so... So... Yes,
0: so we, we, with a couple of minutes left, Dr. Carpin, why then did the South start to secede if they saw Lincoln's stand was he wasn't going to abolish slavery, but he wasn't in favor of expanding it either?
1: Well, I, I think they wanted they needed in order to survive, in order to survive. as And I'm just going
0: through my notes here because
1: I wrote something down that was also very interesting. Uh, you have to understand It is important to understand how much political power the South as a region held during this time. Two-thirds of the United States presidents up until this point were from the South, and no Northern presidential candidate had been reelected. What am I looking for? Okay, so here's – I have this in my notes. I'm just going to read this off here. So Southerners controlled the speakership of the House. The president of of pro tem in the Senate, majority of the Supreme Court justices for the time, this was a very, very, very politically dominant region. And think of what would happen to their political dominance if only free states were added to the union. They would become their own – they they would not have the power that they once had. And so the prevention of the expansion of slavery was not just a threat to their economic way of life, their social structure, their – you know everything that unfortunately they held dear – but you know what Lincoln symbolized was a gigantic threat to their political power and the extent to which they held power over the institutions of government at that time.
0: So we have gotten up to this point, and unfortunately, we're up against the time. Yeah,
1: it, it, time flies when you have fun. It sure
0: does. It's fascinating that that you know there's so much behind the causes for the Civil War that it feels like you're still only just scratching the surface on it, on so many yeah. things you to talk about.
1: Some, somebody should write a book. Oh, wait. I, I oh, did, yeah. No. Uh, yeah. It's,
0: it's all edited good. by yeah. Dr. Michael Carpent. Yeah, that would that'd be a great idea. So, well, Dr. Carpent, <laughs> Michael, thank you again for coming and sharing the causes, teaching the cause of the American Civil War and the fascinating discussion that you have started us on. And if you would like to in the future, please come back. We'd love to have you talk about the election of 1860 and the importance of it and the ramifications of it.
1: I absolutely would be delighted to
0: Well, thank you. We certainly appreciate it. And we certainly appreciate your teaching and your scholarliness and your attitude in teaching this. So, again, we want to thank you for doing this series with us. And we look forward to having you come back fairly soon so we can talk about the election of 1860. So we we, thank you again so much. So this is WFYL 1180 AM. We are working for your liberty.